This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So now's the time to reveal the winner of the 2020 Booker Prize. My very astute co-judges and I have chosen an outstanding winner, and that is... Shaggy Bain by Douglas Stewart. There it is. Thank you very much, Margaret Busby, Chair of the Judge. The winner of the 2020 Booker Prize is Douglas Stewart for Shaggy Bain. Um, Douglas, I know you're looking absolutely shocked there. Let me just invite you just to say a few words, a speech. Oh, sorry, I'm absolutely stunned. I, I, I didn't expect that at all. Um, I'd like to, first of all, just thank my mother. I think I've been clear that my mother is in every page of this book and without her, I wouldn't be here and my work wouldn't be here. Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. And today we're bringing you a Burns Night special in honour of any Scots who may be dancing the Cayley or eating haggis. Now, James, I realise that you are the quiz master out of the two of us, but I'd like to turn the tables on you. Oh, looks. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is not set up. You told me you had a mystery intro. Yep. Okay. It's only for a moment and I'm sure you'll love it. So... A wise man once said of our chosen book for today that this is an overwhelmingly vivid novel, which is not just an almost eerily accomplished debut, it also feels like a moving act of filial reverence, if not perhaps of the sort that J.M. Barry would have recognised. Ten points. Can you tell me which writer that's from? Oh, oh, bless you, Joe. That was me and one of my, my starrier uh, capacities, which is uh, reviewing for the New York Review of Books. Exactly. And uh, we'll five talk... more points. Can you yeah. tell me which book? It, oh, yes. The book was Shuggy Bane by uh, <laughs> Douglas Stewart. I think I'll, I'll talk a bit about a bit more about how that review came about and what, what I learned from it um, maybe later on. But uh, well, thank you for that, Joe. Oh, you're you. welcome. Um, so, yes, we will come to Shaggy Bain and your review. But just for the moment, perhaps we should first explain to our more global audience what Burns Night actually is. I can't claim to be a big expert on this, but it is a commemoration of it's the 25th of January uh, every year, which is by coincidence today. Um, and it is a commemoration of Scotland's national poet, which is Robbie Burns. Yeah. Haggis is piped in. There's a um, sort of ceremonial dinner, quite a lot of neeps and tatties and whiskey, I believe. Obviously, we're, we're doing uh, Shuggy Bain for um, Burns Night because Douglas Stewart is Scottish. And in fact, he was the only the second Scottish winner of the Booker Prize after James Kelman, who won in 1994 for um, How Late It Was, How Late. So we should move on to a summary of Shuggy Bain and the context in which it won. Now, the context in which it won was, it was a rather melancholy ceremony. It, it's available online. Booker Prize website, obviously, because it was during lockdown 2020. Yeah. So you had this sort of listy sort of waving rather forlornly from the sofas. So a little speech from uh, Barack Obama um, and uh, John Wilson, who was the presenter, sort of interviewing people. Margaret Busby, who's the chair of judges, and uh, Bernadine Everista, who's the reigning champ. There was also an interview with uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, rather interesting, because he was saying there's three stages, as long as there's a shortlist, 
and then there's the announcement of the winner. But he said actually the most important stage is what comes next, which is will the public take this book to their hearts? And in the case of, of, of Shaggy Bane, uh, the answer was an unbelievably resounding yes. It sold around uh, 1.5 million copies and uh, much to Douglas Stewart's delight, uh, Barrowlands in Glasgow, which is one of the great music venues there now, has a sort of mural of Shuggy and a quote from the book. Mm. So uh, I think uh, Douglas Stewart's become an all-round Glaswegian and Scottish hero, even though it's something we might return to. He lives in New York. <laughs> As you say, James, 2020 and the other shortlisted novels for that year, some of which I feel like by authors who have really kind of become like a new generation of writers um burnt sugar by avni doshi and real life by brandon taylor who is now like a kind of giant at least on social media also uh oh. the new wilderness by diane cook this mournable body by Suzy dangarembwa and the shadow king by marza mengiste douglas stewart himself was born in 1976 in site hill which is a housing estate in glasgow in scotland I think for anyone who's read Shuggy Bane, you'll hear echoes, if not sort of direct kind of parallels between the book and uh, Stuart's biographies. The youngest of three siblings, um, his father left his family when Stuart was quite young and he was raised by a single mother who was battling alcoholism and addiction. And she died due to health related issues when he was 16. Um, there's this really interesting bit in a uh, Guardian interview that he did for his latest novel, Young Mungo, which pretty much sounds like a partial plot outline for the novel itself. Um, the interview goes, the way he speaks is largely down to his mother. She was a proud woman who insisted that he spoke the Queen's English. She thought regional accents would hold back your kids, that if you wanted to do well, you had to talk like a BBC newscaster. So as a kid, I sounded a bit weirder than the kids around me. Did they bully him for the way he spoke? He laughs. They hardly needed that as an excuse, he says. From the age of six, they taunted him. They thought I was queer because I liked dolls, my little pony, and singing and dancing, and if you gave me a bit of space, I'd twirl. But actually, the reason they thought I was gay is because I didn't play football. Every day, somebody would call me a puffy wee bastard. <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face. <laughs> I don't think people insult each other that way anymore. Um, uh, yeah, they they would call me a puffy wee bastard. I didn't quite know what they meant, but I knew I should feel ashamed about it. And so he goes on to talk about the fact that, um, you know, by the time that he was sort of a preteen, he was already a adult in the house. His brother and sister left home fairly early on when they were 15 and 16 respectively. He would undress his mother when she was too drunk to do it herself, brush her hair, make sure she was eating enough, um, try and protect her from abuse and gossip. And he does say that he would have never been able to write Shuggy Bane if his mother hadn't died. Um, at age 24, Stuart, as you say, James, moved to New York to begin a career in fashion design where he worked first for Calvin Klein and then Ralph Lauren and then for Banana Republic um, as a senior director of design. And he began writing Shuggy Bane while he was balancing 12-hour shifts uh, at Banana Republic. Hilariously enough, I was thinking about this and probably around the time that Stuart was at Banana Republic, I was a teenager in the United States and I really liked shopping at, well, dragging my parents to Banana Republic to let me browse around and shop. So possibly I did wear clothes that Douglas Stewart had designed as a teenager, which is quite hilarious I mean, to think of now. I mean, this is an amazing story how he got from there to there. Because he'd been looking after his mother, his, his schooling was more or less neglected. There was two arts teachers who rated him highly and they persuaded him to go to the 
First of all, he went to um, Scottish College of Textiles, I believe, where he was the only boy. Mm. Then he went to London to the Royal College of Art to do fashion. And his graduate show, there was fashion scouts there. And one of them was from Calvin Klein who said, would you like to come and work in New York? Mm. That's lovely. Well, he still lives in the East Village. Um, and that seems to be in the tradition of Scottish writers who seem to write in homage to a country they really don't want to live in. <laughs> Careful on Burns night, but we will come back, we will come back to that. And, um, and with his husband, I believe. So, you know, doing really well. And I think his second novel, Young Mungo, is also like a, a bestseller. Yeah. So, you know, well done, Douglas Stewart. Not that you really need it from me, but... Nice one, man. So, Suggy Bane. Um, it, it, it opens in 1992 in, in a bedsit um, where Shuggy is living alone, uh, working in a supermarket and sort of going to school a bit. Actually, the, that, that opening section is a rather brilliant overture, actually, because almost all the themes of the book are sort of foreshadowed. Mm. Uh, but then we, we flash back to his childhood from the age of five when he was in Sighthill. Uh, and his mum Agnes, which was also the name of um, Stuart's own mother, so really? it, it is, oh, yeah, it is, it, it is yeah. an autobiographical novel. There's no no two ways about it. He hasn't really hidden that. Um, his dad, Big Shug, uh, is a taxi driver and all round villain, and living with his grandparents, who are Agnes's parents, Wally and Lizzie. It's also a time of full on Thatcherism, where Glasgow is basically collapsing, all the heavy industry is going. Yeah. In the opening scene, there's uh, women playing cards together, including Agnes. And they talk about, the, you know, they've got men, men back at home rotting into sofas for want of work. She, Agnes, had been married before to a sort of rather unexciting, but looking back at it, not a bad choice. But she leaves him because she's rather dazzled by Big Shug, this, this glamorous Protestant guy. And she says she wanted, you know, I, I, I thought I could do better. And his uh, mother says to, to her, Lizzie says to her, well, look what better's got you. And this is, better's got, a, got him Big Shug, who is... Who is a cat. <laughs> yeah, he really is poisonous in a way that we, again, we may return to. Big Shug, uh, after a while, takes the family to Pithead, which meant to be a new start. It's, it's um, a sort of housing development by, uh, by a coal mine, but actually coal mine's already closed. Um, the, pe- the men there have got no work. Um, Big Shug, as soon as they get there, more or less, leaves. The house is much smaller and much uh, more horrible than he'd let on. The neighbours don't, um, don't like the, uh, the Baines very much. And um, once Shug leaves... Uh, Agnes really turns to to the booze then, and she spends most of her benefits on it. And when that runs out, she sleeps with her local husband or two in return for for booze. Um, older sister Catherine leaves more or less as soon as she can. Yeah, they are slightly closer in age to Shuggy than than his own brother and sister were to to Douglas Stewart. Uh, but and his brother Leek is actually apparently Stewart's favourite character in the book. But he seems to opt out, but he sort of keeps an eye on 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 Agnes and on Shuggy. But it's mainly him who. Undresses her, as, uh, you know, in the in the way he describes doing with his own mother. Um, quite a famous scene now, I think, where he will leave out a glass of water for her and a glass of milk. This is so that she can have it in the morning, and also the remains of the special brew. And he knows which one. Uh, she Not will turn even to just first. the remains of the special brew. It's like any booze he can scrape yes, from around that's the that's house, true, mixed yeah. into this weird that's cocktail that's to that's ward off the kind of shakes she that's gets that's from that's withdrawal. That's what she'll do first. Meanwhile, he's again in the autobiographical way you suggest. He's bullied for being effeminate and longs to be normal. And that continues to be the two main narratives, really. But especially Agnes, whom Shuggy unavailingly tries to help, keeps trying to help and will not give up. He's always impressed by her resilience and her pride, the way she always dresses well and the fact that she looks beautiful. Um, And they're both convinced that she's superior to the people around her, which Mm. we will discuss whether they're right to think that. Um, But then she does um, rather unexpectedly sober up for for, uh, at one point. She goes to AA. She decides to go into a, a, a slightly further into town, so it's 
who, who would have a better class of alcoholic. <laughs> Slightly posher AA, which does the trick. And she gets um, a job. Work, she works in a garage at night, so keep her off the booze at night. She gets a, a, a man named Eugene. And, um, oh, we hate Eugene. Oh, I don't. You don't? No, I do. Okay, and, and, and she starts properly looking after Shuggy, cooking, cooking for him, having fun with him. Um, but that's not necessarily going to last as that biography that you gave us of uh, Douglas Stewart himself suggests. Um, and I suppose I, I suppose I better leave it there. Yeah. So that, that's what happens in Shuggy Bane. So what do you reckon, Joe? Well, I think the the typical response to this book is is to cry, you know. And I feel like Stuart did intend for it to be a tearjerker. And I I, I do think that. Um, Agnes's good year, her sober year that you refer to is actually quite a, some might say mean, and I would say odd trick on Stuart's behalf because it comes slap bang in the middle of the book. I think by that point, you know, it's like miserable all the way through, but by by that point, you're sort of like, okay, well, I, I get that this is a book about poverty and abuse and addiction, and it's just awful i mean you're pretty much just constantly reading about agnes being slapped around or her being hung over you know sort of publicly humiliated and embarrassed her kids who are just like alternately hungry or missing out on school or and and i feel like the first sort of um how many um sort of 200-ish pages of that is enough to kind of reflect on. But then all of a sudden it's like Stuart kind of thinks, oh, people people must be getting fatigued with this now. You know, I, I, I feel like he knows that he wouldn't blame people for putting the book down at that point, but he does want to keep going with the misery. So he slots in these 50 pages where Agnes is suddenly a good mother and healthy and well, just so you can kind of get through the other 200 pages of of absolute misery and I feel like those final 200 pages is where I got a bit impatient um but what did you think I I I love this actually Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that I think it deserves all the well I think it absolutely deserves all the success it's had I I do agree with you to the extent that I think it's been slightly sanitized um since because it's been such a huge hit because he's now the sort of king of Glasgow um, it was quite interesting to see him being interviewed by Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, who she then was at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And she sort of welcomes him home and gets a massive applause from, from all of Scotland. And, and she talks about it as a book that, that it removes the stigma around addiction and it gives voice to the voiceless, that it's a love letter to Glasgow. And I just think it is a lot darker and spikier and angrier yeah. and more interesting than that. But in a way, Douglas Stewart's sort of gone along with the gone along with this mythology a bit. I think he sort of seems to be suggesting in interviews um, that you know, it's basically a tender portrait of his lovely tragic mother, which it is. But it's all it, it is. A, it is a tender portrait. It, yeah, I did feel for Agnes. You do feel for Agnes, but it's not just tender. It's also all those other things: um, grief-stricken, excruciating at times, unsparing, piercing, heartbroken, guilt-laden. And uh, another thing that that I think, in its sort of sentimentalized, its posthumous sentimentalization, in a way, is that the people who interview him now say, "You know, do you think your mother would be proud?" Of this God. book and of you, and 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 the answer the answer to that is yeah, you know she'd be very proud I won the book with this book. Actually, wouldn't she be mortified by the picture of her in this book? So, um, in a way, I think it's a lot more interesting, and and I still would suggest brilliant than it than the slightly sanitized myth that's beginning to grow up around it would suggest. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think the this idea of the the best reaction you could have in response to this novel is to cry is deeply weird to me for so many reasons. I actually felt a profound sense of anger um, towards a lot of the characters, Agnes primarily, because essentially you are reading about a woman who, despite her sort of better angels, is just extremely an extremely neglectful mother so in in your summary you mentioned that she she was married before she ran off with Hugh Bain but I I don't think it sort of quite underlines how foolish Agnes can be so her first husband is this perfectly gentle generous nice man who wants to give her the world who works you know extra shifts to be able to afford a mink coat for her so that she can like sort of fulfill her image of herself as like a Glasgow Liz Taylor um who when she steals away with his children in the middle of the night with some random cab driver he doesn't go oh well I'm done with her she's a terrible woman he goes oh my god what did I do wrong (laughs) you know well tell me how I can change and then we can go back to being a family and even when she divorces him he goes we could get married again just tell me tell me what I need to do do you need more stuff more clothes a better house I'll do it and she keeps saying no because she wants a bad boy and um it's only until one day he's with his daughter Catherine and she introduces herself as a stranger uh, introduces herself to a stranger as Catherine Bain rather than Catherine McGowan yeah, is it yeah. yeah rather than Catherine McGowan that he realizes oh I've I've really lost my family here I need to walk away but I I don't see how you could cry at something like that that is deeply I mean irritating is a is a gentle word the feelings you get towards Agnes of like why are you wasting your life and more importantly the life of your children for this guy who beats you, rapes you, ditches you in like a new build housing estate. And when you ask him, why did you never come back? He says, oh, I just wanted to see if you'd stay there, you know, or whether you'd actually leave me. <laughs> but what about what about this idea that she has of herself and Shuggy has of, has of her? And in fact, the people who read the book now, that, that there is something sort of glorious about her. One, this is a bit that people tend to quote quite a lot, actually. Shuggy understood that this was where she excelled. Every day with the makeup on and her hair done, she climbed out of the grave and held her head high. When she had disgraced herself with drink, she got up next day, put on her best coat, and faced the world. And she does consider herself superior to the people around her. Mm. I mean, but the thing is, people tend to quote that bit, but they don't tend to quote this bit, which is when one of the neighbours says to her, you're joking, right? This is Colleen. <laughs> uh, you, come here around, you come here to our wee scheme thinking you're some kind of big I am, walking around thinking you're better than the rest of us with your hairspray and your handbag there. She thrust her finger at Agnes. Ye and that funny wee boy try and rub our noses in it, and the whole time ye's a lion in your own piss and blank blank other women's men. Lord, I've never seen such a hypocrite. And again, I think, what I think about this book, I think, is the astonishing level of contradictions that are allowed to allowed to coexist and to all and to all be true okay for example you got the tragic and the funny the unsparing the tender the compassionate the excruciating all all in the book often in the same paragraph or certainly the same well it consists of individual vignettes really the book Mm, yeah it does um so there's one bit where 
Colleen, that same woman. Yeah. Uh, Sister of Eugene. Yes, as, as it turns out. Eventually yeah, dates. Yeah, that's right. At one point, Agnes sleeps with uh, Colleen's husband, Jamesy, <laughs> so that he will take Shug fishing. Yeah. Because that's that show him a sort of, give him sort of a male role model. Jamesy sleeps with her, but then doesn't take him fishing. She decides to tell Colleen about this, that she slept with Jamesy, gets just drunk enough to do it well, to have the courage to do it, but not to be completely terrible. Um, meanwhile, a posh woman comes around to Colleen's and says, she's been sleeping with Jamesy. Colleen throws Jamesy out, comes out sort of completely distressed, falls on the floor, sort of thrashing about, has got no pants on, no knickers. And um, the quite drunk Agnes takes off her own knickers and gives them to Colleen. Now, this is a scene that I think is, as I say, it, it's all of those things. It's excruciating. It's funny. It's tender. It's There's unbelievable control of tone for most of the time. As I say, I think you can do all those in, in one sentence sometimes. Mm. So that bit where she decides to join AA, but, but in the posh part of Glasgow, sentences, it was a fresh start, she had thought, and hopefully a better class of alcoholic. Yeah. No, you're winning me round slightly. I and, think... And, and those bits, as I say, now we're meant to think Agnes is this unbelievably glorious figure, which she sort of sort of semi is, but yeah. but that belief that she's better than the people around her, it's partly based on the fact that she's more she's more beautiful. Mm. Um on the one hand, glorious and fantastic, and on the other, sad and delusional. Mm. Yeah, no, I'll I'll give you that. Perhaps my issue is more with sort of reader reactions than it is with the actual book. I will say that, um, sort of come, to come back to my earlier point and flesh it out a little bit, I sometimes f- felt while reading that although, although Shuggy is a child for a, a lot of this book, I found him a bit too devoted. The only time where Shuggy in any way sort of rebels is I think when he's around the age of 15 or 16 and Agnes has spent all of their benefits on booze and again, again. And um, meanwhile, and on, on the presumption sort of that he's getting hot meals at school. So he has at least one hot meal a day. And yet, uh, blithely unaware of the fact that Shuggy's been horrendously bullied at school. So people are taking away his lunch vouchers. And so he hasn't been eating at all. And that's the only point at which he he puts up any kind of, not necessarily even fight, but just like questions her at all, you know. And that seems sort of surprising to me, especially because there are two other kids, his siblings in this book, Catherine and Leek, who have a, a much more, you know, maybe in the logic of this book, by virtue of being older, clear-sighted view of their mother. So Catherine absconds to uh, apartheid uh, South Africa to kind of take part in another form of kind of abuse and oppression, but just one where she happens to financially profit. And Leek is sort of very, I mean, he eventually gets kicked out by Agnes just for saying, you know, what the hell are you doing? You're a drunk, you know, mm. get it together. Um, there's this bit, which I think a lot of people find really touching, but that I just really do find a bit... I know I know that part of Shuggy's character is that he's meant to, you know, as Douglas says of his own childhood, speak the Queen's English and be very proper, and that's why he's sort of ostracised um, from... Yeah. She corrects him from saying a boot. Yeah. To, to say to about. about. Yeah. Um, but there's this bit where Agnes and Shuggy are um, in the hospital because Agnes's father is is dying. And um, Shuggy 
um, Shuggy hears a nurse say to a male attendant that um, she thinks Agnes is a working girl, i.e. a prostitute. And Shuggy goes, she is not. My mother has never worked a day in her life. She's far too good looking for that. I, you know, it's funny, but then I'm a bit like, does kid really say this? Like, and especially in context of the fact that he's perpetually sort of going cold and hungry. Like there are all these mentions, repeated mentions of him, his thighs being blue, of the bath water being lukewarm at best. There are a lot of blue thighs in the book. Yeah, of, of the meter above the TV that's filled with 50 pence coins only having enough to watch, you know, about three hours of TV and that's a luxury, you know? Would you not even as a, like, eight-year-old complain? I don't know. I mean, it must. It, um, it does. It does sort of play um, Shuggy's gayness for laughs quite a bit. I mean, there's one where he's handing around the you know food at, at one of the many funerals. I think saying um, you know these are to die for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, um, and when they first arrive, he, he makes a remark like that, and one of the women says, "Well, would you get a load of that Liberace's just moved?" <laughs> yeah. That line you read, I must say, I, I I didn't find. I didn't quite like the one about you know she's she's never worked a day in her life. She's too good looking for that. But 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 his, his refusal to give up, the fact that he'd do anything for her all the time, is un, it's unwavering faith that maybe it'll all you know if he could just love her enough, it'll all be okay. Mm. Did find quite believable and also really heartbreaking. I mean, he, he loves her. That's the thing. That's the thing he's stuck with. We are doing this for Burns Night. So I do kind of actually talk about this in a kind of Scottish literary tradition. And James, in your New York review of books, you talk a lot about this theory of the double self that runs in the Scottish literary tradition and the likes of J.M. Barry or Muriel Spark. Could you tell us more about that? The New York review of books, you know, sent me this book and it wasn't, it was way pre-booker. It was a debut book from an unknown writer, as far as I was concerned. Obviously, he's based in New York. And I thought, what, what, you know, why are they sending me this? And also, for the New York Review of Books, you've got to do basically 3,500 words or something. So you can't do that on one book. Uh, a, impossible, and B, way too boring. So what, the way you'd normally do it is by reading all the other books that the author has written and then, you know, doing it that way. But this is his only book. So I thought I'd look into how it fitted into Scottish literature, and it sort of really does. So a couple of things, a couple of points I'd like to make. There's a book called uh, Scotland's Books by uh, Robert Crawford, which is sort of encyclopedic uh, look at the whole of, of Scottish literature. And there's one book that he calls The Only Book-Length Account of a Mother by a Male Scottish Writer. So this is this was written, obviously that book, Scotland's Books, was written before uh, um, Shuggy Bain. And what he's referring to is Margaret Ogilvy by J.M. Barry mm. about his mother, Margaret Ogilvy. Margaret Ogilvy. And, and um, so the tone of that is set in the opening chapter. When you looked into my mother's eyes, Barry writes, you knew as if, if, as if he had told you, capital H, why God had sent her into the world. It was to open the minds of all who looked to beautiful thoughts. And the way Barry tells it, his mother began each day by the fireside with the New Testament in her hands, the rest of which she spent cheerfully performing domestic tasks, mainly <laughs> sewing and enjoying the works of George Eliot, Thomas Carlyle, who she would read, quote, entranced for hours. Now, Exemplary woman. Exactly. <laughs> and then, so now we've got our second account of a mother by a male Scottish writer, 100 and odd years later. Uh, this time a mother whose day is more likely to begin with a blinding hangover, a spot of dry heaving, and an urgent quest for any booze lying around. Uh, and should this quest fail, it often does. Pops to the liquor store for 12 counts of special brew. Um, and it doesn't read much Elliot or Carlisle, as far as we know. So the, I, I, what I was quite interested in is how did Scottish literature get from, from there to here? And um, if you bear with me, it, it is a quite interesting story, really, because... There was a thing called the Kale Yard Movement, which was the late 19th century. It was very sentimental tales 
about sort of Scottish village life. It was a Caelod was actually a pejorative term, but it, it came from um, Ian McLaren uh, wrote a best-selling uh, collection of rural Scottish tales beside the bonny briar bush, and it has the epigraph there goes there grows a bonny briar bush in our kale yard. So Caelod becomes these sentimental tales of uh, lovely Scot Scottishness, and uh, Jane Barry was part of that in, in, in Margaret Ogilvy. Uh, it was much mocked by um, sort of people in Glasgow and Edinburgh and so on, but it made it an, an awful. It was very, very popular, and not just in in uh, Britain or 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 in Scotland. It, um, McLaren himself died on his second lecture tour of America, I think, and it was also an influence on uh, Lucy M. Montgomery wrote Anne of Green Gables. Uh, she was very um, proud of her Scottish heritage. But then came a massive backlash to this. So, a book called The House with Green Shutters, written in 1901 by George Douglas Brown. He says, I have, I've got, I'm sick of the sentimental slop of Barry and McLaren. No one pictures the real Scottish life. I will write a novel and tell you what Scottish village life is like. And so he writes this ferocious book full of booze and sectarianism, Catholics versus Protestants. Um, mm. The plot is like Thomas Hardy on stilts, suicides, murders. Then there's a reaction to that, I think, which is a book. I wonder how many people have heard of this. This is in 2016, BBC Scotland did a poll to find what the Scottish public's favourite Scottish book was. And it was also, Nicholas Sturgeon has called it, without a shadow of doubt, my favourite book of all time. And it is Sunset Song by Lewis Grassic Gibbon. Mm. If it's a book you know about. I've only never heard, heard of it in your review. And this sort of tries to, well, it introduces us to a village called Kinraddy. And Gibbon says in the book that this village is fathered between a kale yard uh, and a bonny briar bush in the lee of a house of green shutters, even though there wasn't a house with green shutters in the whole of Kinraddy. So what he's saying here <laughs> is basically it's neither the soppy Kinraddy, uh, uh, Kale Yard stuff, nor is it the unbelievably ferocious House with Green Shutters stuff. And the main character in the book, uh, a woman called Chris Guthrie, feels there are two Chris's that fought for her heart and tormented her. You hated the land and the coarse speak of the folk one day, and the next you'd almost cry for the beauty and sweetness of the Scottish land and skies. Mm. So you've got, so you got that double thing. And I think that's that pendulum. So it's, it's classic sort of thesis, and antithesis, synthesis. And I think Shuggy Bain fits into that. Much as Dr. Stewart says, you know, Glasgow is the place I love best in the world. Can't wait to come home to Glasgow. I love Glasgow. Shuggy Bain has both of those. Yeah. A great love for the place, a great hatred of the place. And so it fits in Yeah, there. he says that and goes and lives in New York. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I can come back to that. We'll stop beating him up for it. <laughs> that idea of a divided self in Scottish writing, I mean, we, we've talked about this before. I mean, I suppose the most famous example is, is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which non-readers will know about too. Um, Douglas Stewart himself um, says... Uh, it's, it's there in Muriel Spark. When we talked about Muriel Spark, do you remember her, her favourite word was nevertheless? Yeah. Or her favourite idea was nevertheless. This is true. Nevertheless, so is this. Nevertheless, so is this. Yes. And uh, uh, Prime Minister Jean Brodie, she's both, she's quite divided and she's both inspiring and destructive yeah. and so on and so on. Um, and Douglas um, uh, Stewart has said that the divided self is, is massive to him. And, and obviously it's there in Agnes. Yes. So at one point, Eugene has heard from his sister Colleen that she was an alky whore, and now, she, now she's this lovely, and now that she's this lovely woman, and he says, I can't believe that you and her are the same person. Yeah. And then um, Douglas Stewart himself said that he wrote the book in a way because of his own divided self. So here he is, this high-flying, pretty wealthy fashion designer living in Manhattan uh, with his husband, and yet his background is yeah. you know, cleaning up after his, his mother and up air vomit and so on and he felt completely divided and the way to bring it together was by writing this book yes so that's a fairly lengthy answer to no your question. It's, i think it's beautiful actually and like a real 
really topical for today. Joanna, and I know you obviously got more reservations about, about 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 the book than I have, and I believe that one of them is something actually that Douglas Stewart has, addresses in in various interviews that he has been accused of basically leading um, sort of middle class readers on a on a poverty safari, poverty tourism. <laughs> Uh, safari is so much worse than tourism. Safari is the word he used actually, but poverty, poverty tourism is the kind of the normal thing. Do you want to make a case for why that you at least think that might be a slight worry? Well, in a conversation at the South Bank Centre um, with Bernardine Evaristo, there's this kind of, I think now quite like well, famous enough to be mentioned on his Wikipedia page quote where he says, one of my biggest regrets, I think, is that growing up so poor, I almost had to elevate myself to the middle class to turn around to tell a working class story. And I... I'm by no means sort of trying to slate Douglas Stewart here because I actually think this is a deeper issue that's endemic within the book trade. And I guess this is sort of more of a criticism at the book's reception because you have you have sort of swung me around on on several points, um, James. But Stewart, Stewart himself has said that when the book got sent out, on acquisition, just the kind of literary jargon, to be bought, I guess, or acquired. He got back a lot of very long, beautiful letters from publishers saying, it's a beautiful book, it's a wonderful book, but we have no idea how to market it, so we're going to pass. That's a very famous phrase if you're getting a rejection letter from a publisher, we're going to pass. I hate that euphemism. <laughs> also, also, it's really, really great, but no thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I, do, I do slightly worry, and it is kind of connected to these questions I had about how, how deep um like or to what extent this book actually engages in a kind of true sociopolitical portrait of Glasgow and to what extent it's sort of a much more kind of emotional kind of you know potentially nostalgia driven text I do worry the the big kind of focus over the last five or six years in publishing has to been to create a, a kind of diversity of voices but Often this has meant that whenever a so-called uh, marginalised or diverse voice, um, be they sort of people of colour or working class writers, have been spotlighted, it is only for their suffering. And there is sort of this idea of, um, well, we've got to we've got to read about these these poor people. That it's just wretched, isn't it? Look at all these poor, this poor scum in Glasgow is alcoholic, and you know, I, I cried at the end of it, and I feel enlightened because I cried. I do I, something another, another about bottle that. Of Chardonnay, please. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> about that response does actually repel me quite deeply. Uh, okay, but, uh, fair, fair dues. Except that's that response. That's not the book. It's no, not, that's it's, not the that, book. It's, that's not his fault. I really think that. So he said. Um, in response to that, he said, you know, I've been accused of sort of poverty tour and poverty safari. But what about the people who lived it? I've got to tell the story. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you. And like I said, I don't think this is down to Douglas Stewart himself because he was edited and jacketed and marketed and publicised in a certain way. It's not, it's not him. But I do sort of wonder, A, partially, like how that ties into, you know, my desire for a kind of more well-rounded sketch of the kind of class influences within the community that Agnes lives in. And then also partially to, I guess, you know, you said yourself, Douglas Stewart has kind of gone along with this idea of it being a beautiful sentimental portrait of his 
poor adult mother and I would I would really like to see him do an interview that breaks from and I mean all authors have stock phrases I've used stock phrases to publicize my work but I do sometimes I kind of found myself like trying to find an interview where the interviewer had managed to like jolt him out of it and get him to talk a Mm. bit more sort of sharply about the book you know with the sort of like really deep frustration that it sometimes made me feel you know so i think the deep frustration and anger that you maybe would like him to feel towards his mother or something is there in the book yeah, it's quite difficult to do in real to talk about but, it. Wait, but, but maybe he can't or maybe he doesn't want to yeah that's uh, fair. Uh, 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 maybe i'm asking too much of poor douglas stewart so joe you, you still clearly have reservations about this uh enormously well-loved book um, <laughs> um but do you understand why it's enormously well-loved? No, I, I understood it at the moment I read it. You've won me round a lot more than when I finished the last sentence. And I don't want to Yeah, it's normally spoil... the other way around. You're normally, you're normally... Yeah. I don't want to spoil the end at all. I think a lot of my frustration with the book is um, with the final scene between Shuggy and his mother, which I think sort of eliminates most of the premise of this book. Oh, I, I love that too. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. That's fine. But but I, f- I feel much more warmly towards it after having spoken to you, James. Well, again, I would su- suggest it's a far less cuddly book than the popular yeah. uh, myth might now suggest. Um, so that's it for our Burns Night Shuggy Bane. Uh, yeah, and if you are on a Scottish kick, we do have others. You can listen to our episodes on Loitering with Intent by Muriel Spark and our interview with Graham McRae Burnett about his bloody project. Another divided self right there. Yeah. To find out more about Shuggy Bain, including a video in which Douglas Stewart is interviewed by none other than Queen Camilla, go to thebookerprizes.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes, as well as joining our book group on Facebook. See you next week. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by me, Joe Hamier, and by James Walton. It is produced and edited by Kevin Moyolo, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It is a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. 